Jesus the teacher from this greatest sermon ever preached the Sermon on the Mount and I want to get you to consider uh, the question are you a student or not you've heard me say recently in my study of the Bible I've discovered that Jesus never talked about becoming a Christian he never in fact said pray a prayer or walk an aisle but he taught he and his earliest followers those who penned the scripture for us who gave us God's Word they talk a lot about discipleship about making disciples but never really about becoming Christians, praying a prayer or something like that, but b becoming a student, becoming an apprentice, becoming a learner. And so I'm going to, before we read the story of Matthew 7, I'm going to draw out three points or principles from it. But before we get to the story, I want to give us three principles leading into it. And the first is this, that students don't always get it. Now, if you're a teacher in the room, I see some of you, if you're a teacher in the room, you're like, amen, brother. Like I got several of them in my classroom. Students don't always get it. And I was thinking of Jesus, the teacher, with his disciples. Do you know the disciples, though they were clearly followers of him, they were at times as dense as fog. They were at times as slow as molasses. And some of you, this may uh, disrupt your vision, uh, incomplete vision of Jesus. But Jesus said things like the following to his students because students don't always get it. And he found himself saying things like, Oh, you of little faith. Get thee behind me, Satan. Why are you sleeping? Hey guys, what are you arguing about? How long do I have to put up with you? I've been with you this long and you still don't know who I am. The idea there that we learn is that students don't always get it, but this is important, people. Second thought, but students know they are students. I've got a couple of friends. One uh, is learning to fly a plane. The other is a thoracic surgeon. I didn't even know how to spell thoracic until I was writing the sermon. But these guys know a little about something that I don't know anything about that I cannot do. Some of you can play the guitar. Some of you can speak French. You have a hobby or a skill or a vocation where you learn something where you knew that you had to be a teacher. Everybody, my friend that flies planes, my friend who's a thoracic surgeon, they had to become a student for a long time. They had to sit under somebody. They had to listen and they had to learn. And very soon thereafter of the learning, it wasn't just opening up their cranium and stuffing it with knowledge. They had to begin putting their hands and feet to the task. They had to begin thinking, hey, can I do this? Can I connect learning with life? And here's what never happens. Nobody ever asks someone, Hey, are you a thoracic surgery student? Nobody ever responds by, um, well, let me think about it. Um, maybe, yeah, possibly. Like no one ever responds, do you fly planes? Uh, I'm not sure, let me, let, me, let me ponder that a little more. No one ever says that because even though students don't always get it, students know they are students. And so the question here for us today is, are you a student? Are you an apprentice? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Now look, you can be slow and you can be dense because the Lord in his love rebukes. Can I tell you, I'm the pastor and the Lord in his love rebukes me because I am a student. I don't always get it. But let me tell you, you know, students know they are students. Can I just say that? You know if you're a disciple. Do you sit at his feet and do you learn? I, I'm not saying do you get it all. Do you always get it right? But you know if you're a student. The third point about this, students eventually get 
obedience. A student eventually gets that they need, she, he needs to connect the learning with their life. Now, this is not a good word. How many of you want to be obedient? Anybody want to be obedient? It just, it doesn't sound good. A couple of hands go up just because you're trying to be obedient. But like, it doesn't sound good, does it? We, we connect the word obedience with a lot of negative things. Teachers uh, oftentimes tell parents about their kids, what their kids are like in the classroom. And they'll say, your child dot, dot, dot is so gifted. Your child is so talented. Your child is a leader. Uh, they rarely say, or if they were to say, your child is obedient, I don't even know if that would come across as a compliment. We have friends in California. Uh, they, a teacher told them that their child was disruptive, and they took it as a compliment. They're like, yeah, disruptive, man. They're going to shock and provoke and be a leader and a risk taker. Yeah, our kid is disruptive. And I'm like, I think you missed the point. We had neighbors. They moved away from us. They were next door. They moved away a few years ago to another neighborhood uh, just in the community. And she's a doctor and he was a stay-at-home dad. And he uh, stayed with the kids and stayed with three very obedient dogs, hunting dogs. And I'm telling you, he led these guys very unlike I lead. My, like my dog has free reign. My dog is a part of the family, a supreme part of the family. My dog sleeps in bed with us. My dog gets what he wants when he wants. Their dog, it was like the Kim Jong-un army. I mean, you know, couldn't stand or sit in certain, certain ways at certain times. And we learned, uh, they were telling us one day, Susan and I, that they had taken these three hunting dogs to remedial obedience school. And Susan immediately asked, do they have one of those for husbands? We often think of obedience to be sort of this um, just dutiful and dry obligation. That it's us being weak-willed. It's being robotic or mechanical or contractual. And we're weak-willed little creatures if we're obedient. And as we'll learn in a moment, we're just getting to the story, but as we'll learn in a moment, this is what it's about. And Jesus doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want robotic, mechanical, contrived, weak-willed creatures. He never said, I have come to raise up mechanical, robotic, contrived, weak-willed little creatures who are obedient. In fact, he said the opposite, that he's come to give life, and he wants to raise up learners, students, apprentices of his who are joyful, who are bold, who uh, are thoughtful and wise and discerning and are able to apply that into real-life situations. And so, with these thoughts, students don't always get it. Students know, they know they're students, and students eventually get obedience. There has to be this connection. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, we'll read uh, 24 to 27 from the great sermon on the mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, here comes the obedience part, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So in this story, we, you take what is similar. There are a couple of things that are similar uh, a couple of times over. So what, we put what is similar next to what is similar, what is similar again with what is similar. And then we see the variable. 
And when you notice the difference in the story, then you get the point. And that's what we have here in this story. And so three things I want us to take from it. The first is this, that everybody builds a house. Everybody builds a house. Next door to us, about 75, 85, 90 yards away, uh, they're building a bank. And I mean, they are building. Uh, if you're on staff here, you're here every day, you know, like me, we get a bird's eye view from the third floor looking down on it. They're working uh, seven days a week. Now, they're not today, I think because of the holiday, but they were working yesterday past five o'clock despite the rain and the storms. They are building. If you look up this way, up on the top of the hill, just past Fondren Corner, there's a hotel coming up. They're building a hotel on the Fondren Strip there on State Street, but they're building it so slow. I, I almost never see guys. Now, there's a fence hiding them, I guess, but I almost never see the men working, and I've been intentional to look. You can build... We can build different things. We can build in different paces. We can build some with a sense of urgency on a timeline, some just as it goes, but everybody is building a house. And so to understand the master teacher, Jesus, to know what he's pointing to, you want to substitute the word house with words like life, soul, character. Everybody's building a life. Everybody's building a soul. Everybody's building character. Uh, tomorrow morning, before I run out of town for a few days, I'm going to come back in here and stand right here with a couple. They don't uh, go to our church. You're not going to know probably who I'm talking about. But they've been friends of mine for a number of years. And they've asked for our beautiful facility to come in on their 35th wedding anniversary and renew their vows. Just a few of us standing right here. I love this couple. I didn't want to be here because I wanted to go out of town a little earlier. And they said, Robert, we'll, we'll write a check to the gym for renovations. I said, I'll be here. What time do you need me? And so tomorrow, tomorrow we'll be in here. We'll hopefully set the lights right in the room and just a few of us will stand here. And what I love about this couple is I have watched them for years with admiration. I've watched them uh, through their local body of believers mentor young couples to get with young couples and walk with them through the early parts of marriage and whenever they need help to be there, to be called on, to talk about. And what's so great about this couple, they realize they have built a house and they built it for 35 years. But some of those years, they will tell you, as they've told me, they were hard. Some of those years, they probably wondered if they could or should make it through them. But they have realized God is building something bigger than us here. And everybody Everybody, everybody builds a house. Well, how do you build? If you build a life, if you build, if you build character, if you're building a soul, no one's exempt. How do you build? You build with the choices that you make. Some choices you know are more important than others, but life itself is a series of choices. Choices about how we spend our time. Ephesians chapter 5 would say, make the most of every opportunity. The days are evil. Anybody believe that? The days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity. Walk with wisdom. Use your time wisely. You're building a house. How you spend your time is massively important. Jesus, before he told this parable, back a chapter in Matthew chapter 6, says that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. How you use your money is supremely important in your life. How you... Use your words. The half-brother of Jesus in James would say that with the tongue, 
With the tongue, the same tongue, the same mouth, we bless God and curse others. My brothers, my sisters, this ought not to be. Your world, your, your mouth rather, is a world full of deadly poison, but it can bring life. As the, proverb, the writer of Proverbs says, like apples of gold and settings of silver, so is a word aptly spoken. You're building a life, a character, a soul, a household by the words that you use. Do you bring life when you speak? Your thoughts. I've had more conversations about peace of mind over this holiday season than I ever have. I've gotten deeper with people about mental health issues than I ever dreamt of. And what a gift, what a gift, even when things are swirling around us, to be able to say, it is well with my soul. And can I tell you something that I cling to? Because if you're here on Christmas Eve, Eve, I shared a little bit of my neurosis and my brain and how it works. But can I just tell you, I have learned that Romans 8 is so true. It is abundantly true that a mind that is set on flesh, it leads to death but a mind that is set on the Spirit leads to life and to peace. And you're building, you're building a character, a soul, a life by the thoughts that occupy your mind, by the words that come out of your mouth, by how you spend your time and how you spend your money. And you're never too old to hear that, but by the company that you keep. Proverbs 13, 20 says that if you want to be wise, you walk with the wise. But if you are enjoying the company of fools, it will lead to destruction. Who you're hanging out with is in, is in a big part of how you're building a house. But everybody is building a house. Do you notice Jesus says that? He doesn't differentiate. Everybody's building a house. Second thought that he gives to us is that everybody faces a storm. This, as much as you want it to be, as much as I want it to be, it's not a pristine, pretty story with a, with a pretty bow tied on it. It's not a story about storm avoidance. Now, how many of you want a storm avoidance story, right? How many of you want to, hey, if I do these five points of obedience, just like the preacher says in 2019, then I can avoid any and all storms. This is not a story about storm avoidance at all. Everybody's building a house and everybody, every life, you and I, everybody in this room, everybody that we love that's not in this room will face a storm Multiple storms. You know, there's no part of the country where you can go to get away from this reality. If you say, I want to go to the Pacific Northwest, and some of you do, beautiful part of the country, isn't it? Some of you have visited recently, I know. But you got rain and storms up there. If you, if you go to the Northeast, it's frigid and Arctic, and all the winter chill that lasts so long. If you choose to live, as most of us do here in the Southeast, we have to deal with the heat and humidity and stuff. The desert Southwest is, they call it a, a dry, arid air out there. It is, but it gets hot. I hiked the Grand Canyon rim to rim this summer. It is hot in the desert Southwest. Everywhere you go, you cannot avoid something that says it's just not perfect here. There's some element that you have to flex with and, and get through with. When Susan and I were dating, uh, some of you know it was a long-distance relationship, coast to coast. I was living in South Florida in Miami, and she was out in Los Angeles and, and of course, Southern California. And it, as, as our 
relationship stepped up to the level when we both started entertaining the thought that this could lead to marriage, we started having conversations, flirty conversations about which part of the country where we were going to live in. And she would say things like, well, gosh, Florida down there in the Southeast, you, know, you guys have tornadoes and hurricanes. And I would say back to her, well, Susan, you're in California and you have earthquakes and fires and mudslides and OJ Simpson. You know, you have things, we all have things that we have to be afraid of, right? And so it is in life. And here's what's interesting. Storms are the things that test you. Storms are what test you. Now, that's not the only thing that tests you. In fact, I love the wisdom from Scripture. In Proverbs, I think it's 27, 21. Proverbs 27, 21. It says, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and so is praise to people. In other words, not the, not the praise that you give God, not the praise or compliments you give other people, but the praise that you receive. What's the idea there? Silver and gold are precious metals. They're tested in the crucible and in the furnace. And when it gets hot, that's when the crud comes up and you get to see what it's made of and it gets to be perfected and it, it becomes a valuable object to be sold and to be bought. And that's silver and gold and precious metal. But your life, the life of a human being, of a woman and a man, is tested by the praise that you receive. In other words, you're tested when things are going really, really well. Anybody? Things going well? Don't raise your hand because the rest of us will hate you. But man, everything, like the bills are paid. You got a Christmas bonus. Uh, you're in a good relationship. You got shiny white teeth. Everything's going your way. You're so excited looking back at the year, looking ahead at the new one. Everything's going your way and you're receiving praise. Your boss loves you or you are the boss and everybody is singing your praise. Things are going well. You're not vexed with any problems. Be careful. Enjoy. Enjoy, like I, I really don't want to begrudge that. Enjoy that season, but with praise, you'll be tested. Proverbs 27, 21. And too much praise, it can go to your head, it can lead to pride, it can get you off kilter. Praise will test you, but so it is. You see life in the extremities, Scripture teaches us. Praise will test you, but so will storms. When, things, when something comes and hits you suddenly, when something knocks you off kilter, You'll be tested. And it's this idea here. The strength of the storm reveals the foundation of the house. This is what's different in the story. This is the variable where we can find Jesus' point. The genius of Jesus, the teacher. No one, no one enters a home and notices a foundation. We notice shiny hardwood floors, high vaulted ceilings. We notice open places, granite countertops and stainless steel appliances and keepsakes and collectibles and special framed art on the walls. We notice those things and we comment on them, but nobody walks into a house and says, you have a nice foundation. We don't notice it. We don't notice the foundation, but Jesus is teaching us that just maybe, well, there's no maybe about it. The most important thing it very likely is what we can't see. And a storm comes, and it will test the foundation. And in that, the, can we see the contrast? And here's the contrast. Did you pick up on it? It is obedience. It's a word that you don't like, but I've got to preach it. It's a part of the story, and it's a vital part. It's a part that says, and I think this is striking, notice what Jesus doesn't teach. Jesus doesn't teach 
oh, there's a good person and an evil person. That'd be too easy. That's what you want. That's what the little boy in me wants. Give me the good, angelic being, sort of the heavenly host kind of hero guy who's got it together and he can avoid the storm because he's walking in God's favor and blessing. Give me that guy. And then there's the real evil guy, the bad guy who's plotting everybody's revenge and he's out to get people. But he doesn't say that. Skillfully, Jesus says, the difference in the foundation of the home is between one who is foolish and one who is wise because nobody ever starts out their day going, I'm going to be evil today. Like we typically don't do that, do you? But we, we end up there and we drift there. Some of you are my heroes because you're in recovery. Because you know what some of us take for granted. That every day is a new day and every day matters. And the foundation is the part of your house, your life, your soul, your character that people can't see, but it's important. And you have to deal with it. In the book, the great Alcoholics Anonymous book, it has this quote that I want to put in front of you now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked for His care with complete abandon. There is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find Him now. This prayer, this challenge for people that go through this recovery program, I want to point your attention to the first sentence. Half measures availed us nothing. You see, what Jesus is also teaching us here is that nobody wants to live in half a house. You you have to have a foundation, and then you construct around that foundation, and you care that it stays in one piece, that it's a complete and it is a, a full house. It's not half a house. And what I know about me is that sometimes I love half measures. Sometimes I think just a little bit of devotion. I'll just dabble. Just a little bit of sacrifice. A little bit of generosity, enough to show off or say that I did it, but not enough to to make sacrifice. I need a little bit of God when things are hard. And I want some distance from God. Right when I want to do my own thing. You can't live in half a house. Half measures availed us nothing. To say, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I want to learn from you. And when I learn something, I am going to look to test it and to see that it is true. As you make my heart right, my feet will be swift to do what you say to do. You see, the people who Jesus talked to and shared this sermon with, there were disciples and there was the crowd. And the crowd was really impressed with Jesus' teaching. But the disciples were really impressed with their own lives because they saw their lives begin to change. Have you seen it? Have Have you seen it in your life? Have you lived life your way, doing things your way, and then you turned? The Bible calls it repentance. And so it's a wonderful gift a difficult word maybe, but a wonderful gift. And you said, hey, I want to do, Jesus, what you said. I want to handle money. I want to handle sexuality. I want to handle my time and my schedule. I want to give it to you. I want to, for you to be in my thoughts. I want, to, I want to measure my words and speak words well. I want, to, I want to make changes in the company that I keep. Jesus, I want to do things as you say to do them. Half measures availed us nothing. So why, going back a moment, why does Jesus... Not say good and evil. That would have been a lot easier. 
Why does he say foolish and wise? Every parent gets this. But every time a child, a younger child, does something foolish, does something infuriating, does something destructive, the parent asks a question, and what does the question say it out loud? Why? Why? And the sub-thought there is, what were you thinking? Which is, parents, free advice worth the price, is a stupid question. Okay, if you're a parent or a future parent, just a stupid question. Why? What were you thinking? And inevitably, that child who did something foolish, infuriating, and destructive, they are going to say what? They are going to say, I don't know. And their corollary point is, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And can I just say, you never outgrow that. I'm not here today calling you evil. Now, if you're evil, come see me afterwards. Right? We're going to lay hands on you and pray for you because there could be some evil people among us. But most of us, most of us are somewhere vacillating between foolish or wise. And I bet there's a few of you just sitting in your folly right now. But we never outgrow this. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Proverbs 27 says this. The prudent sees danger, and they take refuge. But the simple, thats we use the word differently than, like simple is good in my, in my vernacular, like, yeah, let's keep it simple. But simple here is negative. Simple here means uh, naive. So let me start over. The prudent sees danger, and they take refuge. But the simple keep going, and they pay the penalty. When I was a little bitty, like this big. I had an older sister. She was itty-bitty, but 18 months older than me. And we had a family vacation at the beach. And my sister saw this in intriguing, bright, transparent blob at the water's edge of the beach. And she went over. We had been playing with balloons. Other people down the beach had been playing with balloons. She thought it was a balloon, and she put her toe on it, and it was a jellyfish, a weird-figured jellyfish. And she touched it with her toe, and apparently that potent poison released itself. And she began screaming, she began yelling, and we began making our way to the ER. And I remember years and years later, on a beach about less than 100 miles away, I was walking with my boy, my young one. And there was some something on the water's edge, and he was going toward it. He probably, knowing him, would have done more than put his toe on it. He probably would have picked it up and squeezed it. And I said to him, what? I quoted Proverbs, well, not really. But I did say to him, I said, right, preachers always quote Bible verses, but I said to him, don't touch it. Do not touch it. Now, I did not in that moment give him a multi-layer educational course on marine biology. I didn't talk about how to decipher between the jellyfish and other creatures or things of the sea or on the beach. I just simply said, don't touch it. It will hurt you. And no toddler wants to be told no. No toddler wants their fun to be stopped. But if you're a parent, you know, you say things like, don't touch the jellyfish. Quit eating all the chocolate. Don't run. I saw this recently. Don't run with the golf ball in your mouth, right? That, that parent that I saw, not a good parent. Uh, they don't go to our church. But uh, this parent, you know, you're running and there's a golf ball, full golf ball in this little mouth. They didn't give a lecture on trachea and choking and, you know, CPR. They just simply said, get the golf ball out of your mouth. It will hurt you. The prudent see danger and they act on it. They take refuge. 
But the simple keep going, and they pay the price. And Jesus is saying, everybody builds a house. Everybody faces a storm. And the strength of the storm reveals the foundation of the house. And the difference in the foundation of the house is are you a disciple, a learner, and are you doing what you're learning? Are you doing things your way? Are you prone to folly? As I begin to close, you guys can go ahead and make your way up if you would. But as I begin to close, I want to just point you to some of you know this, but Jesus would tell another construction story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, and he would talk about a builder, uh, one builder who was about to build not a house, but a tower. And he said when, when a man builds a tower, just as a man when he goes to war, when he builds a tower, what does he do? Some of you know this. He has to count the cost. In other words, there is a cost to being a student. Now, we get this when we enroll in school. We get it. There's a cost. you got to pay tuition. you got to pay for it in many ways. But there's a cost to being a student and a learner, an apprentice of Jesus. So count the cost. For these followers, early followers of Jesus, it meant high adventure. It meant learning and discovery. It meant poverty and suffering. But you know what it meant? It meant joy and meaning. And can I tell you, I'm a pastor, front row seat all the time. People, we, we are in a battle for joy and meaning, and it seems to be like it's rarefied air. And that's what Jesus offers. There's the cost of it. So as a disciple, as a learner of Jesus, I want to tell you what I'm learning. There's high adventure. There's hardship. There's discovery and learning. For these disciples... History tells us there was death. For some of them, it meant an early death. But something is under even that foundation, which is, do you have anything worth dying for? So what I'm learning is what I challenge you with is when you close out a year, how's your house? Are you willing today to give up the illusion of storm avoidance? Because that's just not going to work. Like, it's, it's hard. Life is hard for all of us. So you let God take care of the storms. You may have never heard this verse. I'll just quote a part of it. It's a minor prophet, Nahum, N-A-H-U-M. Some of you are smiling. Nahum. Don't correct me on the pronunciation. I got it right. Nahum, chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that God is in the storm. It's in the storm. doesn't say he's, you know... Now, we know story after story of Scripture, a lot of us do, where where he's the storm calmer. And he can be the storm remover, but he's in the storm. So a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is one who identifies with him. One who surrenders his will. Some of us aren't willing to do that. One who surrenders his will. One who lays down his ego. And one, listen to me, one who arranges practices and relationships and rhythms of life to learn from Him and to live it out. So would you stand with me? And as you do, I want to give you one last charge. One last charge from this story.
of two builders, two houses, storms, and two different foundations. In this challenge, the difference is it's in the doing. You see, there's going to be a day. There's going to be a day where Jesus wants us to look forward to this, where the words could be uttered, well done, good and faithful servant. And somebody needs to hear this today. Not well thought, not well planned. Some of you are planners, God bless you. Not well articulated or well intentioned, but well done, good and faithful servant. And the half-brother of Jesus, James 1, would say, don't be like that man, that woman who looks in a mirror, who forgets what they saw, walks away. They just forget it. But look intently. Look intently at the law. Be a disciple. Be a learner and do something about what you're learning. And the word listen there, some Greek scholars have likened it to our English word audit. Anybody ever audited a class? You know when you audit a class, you're, like, you're, not, you're just listening. There's no test or no homework. That's pretty cool. But you know what else? There's no credit. And I think Jesus is saying, don't audit the class. Jump in. Not in half measures. Don't worry. Some of you are worried about being a good disciple. Just be a thick-headed, dense, stubborn, slow disciple. But you're going to know. You're going to know if you're a disciple. You will know. Father, we're not here to be church folks. Church is great. We're not here to pray a prayer and check a box. We are here to learn from you. And God, your words give life. God, what you teach is true. And God, I want to pray grace over the lives right now here who are building on a faulty foundation. For the naive and the simple and even the ignorant who have seen danger, oh, they've seen it. But they took no refuge. They charged ahead and are now paying for for that. Lord, I pray for your grace over them. Lord, the good news of the gospel they would realize is so true for them. God, thank you that you forgive my half measures. You stay with me on this journey in helping me build a life. This altar is open. What a wonderful way to close the year. If you wanted to humble yourself, it would be that, wouldn't it? To walk down front in front of a few folks. You're not doing it for anybody, but just to walk down and to say, God, I want to close out this year before you. And if it's a celebration or if it's a confession, it could be a moment right here and it could be a testimony that we're a church, we're a body of people who seeks Him. And then to pray a prayer. Lord, am I a learner? Am I a disciple? Would you make my heart a willing participant in your plan for me? Let's sing and let's pray. You come today.